0: Tonight to Philippians chapter number one, Philippians chapter number one this evening. And I have a few thoughts that I want to share with you. What a blessing it is being be in the Lord's house on Wednesday night for prayer meeting. Amen. Uh, This must be the most important service of the week because the devil seems to fight us the hardest on Wednesdays. So I trust God has something special for us this evening. Philippians chapter number 1. We're going to read the first seven verses of this chapter. Verse number 1 reads this way, "...Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ." I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privilege it is to have a church to go to, to have on a Wednesday night to be able to come and meet together, gain encouragement from the Word of God, be strengthened that we might, Lord, be fortified in our walk with you. Pray that you'd help us to take these truths, and as we submit to the Holy Ghost, let them be applied to our lives, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as you read the book of Philippians, you'll find that the theme throughout this uh, little Pauline epistle is joy. In fact, the word joy is found six times uh, in this short epistle, and the word rejoice, now tell me God don't have a sense of humor, is found twelve times. So if you got joy and you did it twice, you did it over again, you rejoiced, it'd go from six times to twelve times, amen? I, I, and I only took uh, remedial math, can you believe it? And uh, so the idea behind Paul's writing to the church at Philippi is to set forth the joy in the life of the believer. Can I tell you that I believe that one of the great marks of end-time apostasy and apathy is that Christians are losing their joy in the Lord. We wonder why we're so powerless to reach the world around us. Well, the book of Nahum said that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. And when we lose our joy, man, we've lost our drive. It's like having a car with no gasoline in it. It can have everything it needs. But man, joy is our strength. It's what keeps us going in the Lord. And Paul, when he writes the book of Philippians, it is astounding to think that joy is the is the prominent word and the prominent thought Uh, that flows from his pen. In fact, we've read it here this evening. He he gets 62 words into this book, and already you find this little word joy showing up in verse number 4. He says, "...always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy." Now, most of you are students of the Bible enough to know that this is one of Paul's prison epistles. He is not in a very joyful circumstance. In fact, I can imagine Paul there in jail in Rome, shackled with a soldier on either side. And I can imagine the things that are constantly trying to steal his joy. I'll tell you something, it will be an eye-opening experience to you when you begin to try to look through spiritual spectacles at the things that are trying to steal your joy in life. You'll find when you look around that there's all kinds of reasons and excuses and things over which to lose your joy. And the devil gives us no shortage of of thieves, of uh, sort of bandits that can steal our joy in our Christian walk. thought about the things that maybe Paul could have let stole his joy while he was in prison. I thought about his blunders. You know, Paul is a man, he's in prison, and I want to be careful how I say this. One of these days I'm going to have to see him, and he might hit me in the mouth if I speak too bad of him. But uh, Paul was a man that he is in jail at this moment in life, and I don't think we're making too strong of a statement to say he's there because of some choices that he made. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, preacher, he's there for preaching the gospel. And that does not I, I don't dispute that whatsoever. But I'd remind you that the place where he was arrested, sent to Rome, was at Jerusalem. A place where God expressly forbid him from going. On several occasions, after he makes his mind up to go to Jerusalem, the Lord, through people, uh, through directly speaking to Paul, through prophets, he makes clear to Paul that it is not the will of God for him to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says that famous verse that a lot of preachers like to preach on, none of these things move me, neither count of my life so dear. Uh, What he's saying when he says none of these things, he's talking about God's warnings. He's not talking merely about the obstacles that would naturally uh, present themselves to him. He's saying all these things, all these roadblocks that God has put in my way, he says none of these things move me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And while, again, God brought many wonderful things out of uh, Paul's prison ministry, we sit here tonight preaching on the book of Philippians because Paul made some mistakes and God turned them for good. But I, I can't help but think that it must have been hard for Paul when he considers that he's sitting in that Roman jail because he has made some mistakes in following God. He has disobeyed the Lord. You know, oftentimes in our life we can let the mistakes that we've made, our blunders, the things that we have brought upon ourselves and that have brought loss in our life, uh, we can allow those things stiller joy. I've known people in my life that have made mistakes that they just cannot get past. And it's not that the grace of God's not sufficient, but it's that they, for whatever reason, are unwilling to allow the grace of God to magnify itself above their mistakes and the things that they've done. And they just live with this perpetual cloud over them because they've made some missteps in life and they've suffered some losses because of it. I think his blunders could have been some things that would have stolen his joy in that jail cell. I think, number two, his bonds were probably some things that it would have been real easy. I don't know about you, but there's probably not a lot of happy people sitting down in the county jail tonight. Uh, If they're happy now, they won't be when they sober up. Somebody say amen to that. And no doubt that he could have thought to himself, man, what a waste this is. And I thought about the first one, his blunders reminded me of his losses in life, but his bonds remind me of his limitations. No doubt he thought to himself, why does God have me? There's so many people that won't go and reach people with the gospel and I'm willing, but here I sit in a jail cell. I wish I could do more for the Lord. I, I wish I had more freedom. I wish I had my health was in better condition. And no doubt he could have, in other words, talking about his lot in life, he could have allowed that to steal his joy. And there are a lot of people, no doubt, that wake up every morning angry at where God has put them and the things that God has placed. In their life. You know the fact is we can allow our life to be a source of bitterness towards God. Or we can allow it to be something that drives us to greater dependence upon Him. And to a broader spiritual perspective trying to see how God is seeking to use us. Even in a prison cell like Paul was. God used him in a mighty way. And then I couldn't help but think about the burdens that were upon him. You know when he was writing to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians there had been some that had challenged his apostleship. And when he sought to vindicate, to to authenticate his apostleship, he didn't point to his achievements and accomplishments, he pointed to his afflictions. And he said, let me tell you some of the things that I've suffered. He goes down through a laundry list of how he was shipwrecked, how he's been beaten, how he's, uh, you know, been in prison, how he has uh, dealt with uh, hunger and, and uh, thirst and, and deprivation. And then when he gets to the big long list, to, to the end of it, you know what he says? Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, beside those things that are without. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying all of these external things that are pressing in on me. Those are a lot of burdens I have. Now, I'd remind you that a lot of those burdens, not all of them, but a lot of them he was not experiencing this moment. Now, no doubt he is suffering affliction, but many of the trials and and persecutions that he experienced as he traveled preaching the gospel are not realities as he is now under house arrest in Rome. But listen to what he says. Beside those things that are without, he said, I've got some inner burdens. He says, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches... See, even though Paul was removed from the the trail of preaching the gospel and planting churches, it still didn't remove those churches from his heart. And as he sat in that jail cell, without the ability to go visit these churches, to, to preach to these churches, to fortify these churches, no doubt he could have merely sat around and worried himself into misery over the burdens that he had upon his life. And I know lots of people that the joy of the Lord has been robbed from them Because their life contains burdens. I would remind you that there was no greater example of joy ever to mankind than the Lord Jesus. And there was also no one that ever carried a heavier burden than Him. I want you to listen carefully. This may sound like a harsh statement, but I promise you it comes from a place of compassion. You may have burdens in your life and I may have burdens in my life. But those burdens can only rob us of our joy if we forfeit our joy. Christ said this, your joy shall no man take. Nobody can take your joy from you. You have to forfeit it by getting your eyes on yourself, getting your eyes on your problems, getting your eyes on your failures, getting your eyes on the failures of others. If we keep our eyes on Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame that set down on the right hand of God, if we'll keep our eyes on Him, He'll never disappoint. And He never changes. We can be just as excited about Jesus Christ today as ever we have been, regardless of the burdens that we carry in life, because He never changes. So in this environment, there's all these things could have robbed His joy. But over and over again, Paul talks about the joy that he has in his soul. And I would remind you that joy is not a matter of the externalities of circumstance, but it's a matter of the internalities of communion with the Spirit of God. There's nothing outside of you that can take your joy from you. You have to forfeit it by allowing your walk with the Lord to be disrupted or weighed down. And so as we walk through the book of Philippians, I want to give you a few places where you can find joy in a joyless season. Paul was in a joyless season in his life. Nobody would have blamed Paul if he had written this letter and said, You know, folks, I'm just discouraged. He had every reason to be discouraged, but still he finds joy in a joyless season. Sometimes you'll go through times in life where it's hard to have joy. How can you maintain your joy in the Lord? I want to give you a few of them tonight. The first is we've read in in the first chapter of Philippians... And he is describing his love for the church at Philippi. And he says this in verse number 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Let me say number one tonight, you can find joy in prayer even when you're in a joyless season in life. He said, you know what I find that when I will engage actively in prayer, when I will get in the prayer closet and get my mind and my heart and my life settled on the throne room of God and really start talking to Him, I find that it's not that my burdens go away, but I find that there's blessings there and I find joy in prayer. Now again, prayer experiences, our prayer life experiences dry seasons. But we'll find this, that in prayer, we can have a joy that the devil and the world and the flesh cannot rob. I don't really have time to go through all of it. But he says, he, he points to the miracle of prayer. He says, man, I'm just excited because I can pray. You know, no matter what you are experiencing in life as a child of God, it's a miracle that you can still enter, transcend this realm and enter. Just as real as you and I sitting here now, you can enter into the throne room of God. And that ought to be something that we take joy in. Nobody can kick us out of our father's house and out of our father's room. The miracle of prayer is a reason. And then the ministry of prayer... He said, every time I make these requests, I make them with joy. And he says, this is why, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He said, you know why I have joy when I pray? Because I have a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And I am confident that he is hearing what I am praying, what I am asking for. I am confident that despite everything falling to pieces around me, I can go into the presence of God, and he's still got it all together, and he hears my prayers, and he's willing to answer and work mightily in my life. Despite the limitations he felt, he could still pray and get a hold of God. You'll find joy in your prayer life. Look down in verse number 12. Uh, He describes what is going on, why he's in prison, and, and more importantly than that, he describes what's going on in light of his imprisonment. And he says in verse number 12, but I would that ye should understand brethren that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. He says, I know that you pity me, but the fact is God is working through this thing. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear." said, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Can I pause here and say this? Probably what's going on here is got some people preaching the gospel and saying, don't associate with us with Paul, he's a kook. He's crazy, he's a nut. And others that are saying, oh yes, we're standing with Paul and he is right and he is true and he is a real apostle. And either way, they're preaching the gospel. And Paul says this in verse 18, what then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he says, Christ is preached and I therein do rejoice. He said, I find a reason to have joy. He says, yea, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He said, you know, some people are preaching and they're throwing me under the bus. Some people are preaching and they're holding me up to the throne room of God. But one way or another, guess what? People is preaching. And he said, I rejoice in that. Let me say this, I believe you can find joy in providence when everything's falling apart. You know, he he talks about God's working. He says, even with me locked away in this prison cell, God's still working. Even with me and all of the limitations I have, you know, sometimes we feel so limited. There's things we want to see happen, people's lives that we want to see change, and people's hearts that we're praying and begging for God to get a hold of. And sometimes if we're not careful in that waiting season as God is growing us and as God is orchestrating these things in people's heart and life, we can get to feeling as though God has just fell asleep on His throne. But Paul says, even in the midst of this, man, I find joy in knowing that God is working throughout this whole thing. And I may not see all sides of it, but I'm confident, I'm sure that God is at work. You know, listen, you never have to grow bitter in thinking that God has given up or left you hanging out to dry. God is always working, even when you can't see it. I think he also sort of hints at God's wisdom here. God was essentially, through the persecution of Paul, doubling... His witness. Paul, if he had been out of prison, he could have only been in one place at one time preaching the gospel. But Paul's in prison, and because of that, there's a multitude of people out preaching, some of them that love Paul, some of them that hate Paul. But it's like God sits there, Paul sits back and he wonders at the awe of God, that through his persecution, the gospel of Christ is being preached, and the witness of God is being multiplied, and the testimony of Christ is being magnified. And he says, you know, only God could have constructed it in this way. And i found that in my life, oftentimes, the things that I complain about God the most about are the things that God is doing in such a way that I could have never imagined. Oftentimes, God is doing something I don't understand, and it's not the way I would have done it, and it's a good thing because I make a mess of things. But the way God's doing it is infinitely wise. Listen, you can find joy in the fact that God's still working. God's still working. You may not see it all. But you can have confidence that He is the Lord and He changes not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not quit working. You may be in a joyless season. There may be things all around you to rob your joy. But don't think that God's fell asleep. He's still working. Turn over to chapter number 2. You probably don't even have to turn the page. I know if you've got an old Schofield Bible, you don't have to. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bows and mercies, He says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let me say that you can find joy in partners in ministry. It is very easy to always focus on the people that are failing and giving up and giving out and quitting. It's very easy to only see the folks that are going through the back door. It's very easy to only see those, the demuses that are turning and walking away. But Paul says in the midst of all that, I have joy when I remember that there's still people living for the Lord and there's people that love each other. Listen, the devil would have us believe, and the world would have us to believe, that Christians just simply cannot get along. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's become a bit of a meme, and it's become a bit of a cliche, and we talk about people fussing and fighting. But I'll tell you this, man, I find no better harmony. There may be some people that walk around with a chip on their shoulder, but I find no better unity, no better harmony, no better love, no better compassion than in the house of God. Man, I find people that love each other, that pray for each other, that care. I find people that remember the burdens that people are going through. And listen, if you want to find joy, you're always going to find somebody that's got something to criticize. You're always going to find somebody that's negative. You're always going to find somebody that can't get along. But if you'll look for folks that love each other, you'll find them in the house of God. And Paul, he says, man, fulfill my joy. Be like minded. He talks about what it evidences. He says, if there be any consolation, comfort, fellowship, the spirit, bowels and mercies, be of one accord, be of One mind, be like-minded. You know what that tells me? That when people love each other, it's proof that there is consolation. In other words, they care about the Lord. There is comfort. They do desire to help each other. There is fellowship of the Spirit. There's some folks listening to the Holy Ghost. There are bowels and mercies, meaning people that have deep abiding feeling love one towards another. And the fact that, listen, we as the people of God pray for each other and encourage each other is just proof that there's a supernatural love that God has placed in our heart. And don't let let us never let the world, the flesh, or the devil rob away from us the reality that God's people do love each other. We may not always agree about everything. There may be uh, bickering. There may be people that just walk around with negativity dripping off of them. But by and large, the people of God love each other. And let us never lose sight of that. Notice what it elicits. He says, it'll fulfill my joy if I hear this about you. He says, it'll make me happy. It'll give me a point of joy to know that God's people care for each other. Uh, Look with me down, verse number 17. Verse number 17. He's talking about the work that God has done in the church at Philippi and how that God had used Paul. Of course, Paul was the person that God used to plant this church, if we want to say it that way. He had won Lydia to Christ. He had won several others to Christ. He had won the Philippian jailer to Christ. And there was the little beginning stages of this church at Philippi. And he's writing to them and exhorting them to obey the Lord. We preached on this a couple of weeks ago, being lights in a dark world. And just after that, verse 17, he says this, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he said, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. What's he talking about when he says that? He's saying this, look, if I'm praying for you, if I'm, he used this language with the church at Corinth, spend all and be spent. That's what he said, I will gladly spend all and be spent for you. And he's saying, if I am spending my time, my prayers, my energies, my witness, my influence, my testimony, if I am pouring myself into your life, and it produces in you faith, and it produces in you a sincere walk with God, he said, I joy in that. And he said, I know the same is true of you concerning me. That if you can minister to me and produce in me greater faith, that you rejoice in that. And I just wrote it down this way, we can find joy in purpose in our life. We could sum it up this way that Paul says, man, I find joy in the fact that I'm being used of God. Even in this prison cell. Even all these many miles away from you. Even with all the burdens and limitations that I have. I can still take pen in hand. And I can't do what I once could do, but I can still do more than a lot of people can. And I can take pen in hand and I can write down and I can encourage you. And he said, if I spend all, if I'm sacrificed... on the the altar of your faith and in the service of your faith. He said, man, I rejoice in that. Let me tell you something. We can get so focused on what we wish we were doing that we neglect and despise what we are able to be doing. I've met a lot of people in life that was going to do great things for God someday. And God putting opportunity after opportunity right in front of their face that they just brushed to the side because it was not what they were hoping and anticipating being able to do. This is part of the reason, man, in local churches, and I don't say this by way of fussing, but it is the reality that in local churches, very often uh, pastors and ministry leaders are, are, are begging people to serve. And, and oftentimes the churches are full with people that say, well, I want to serve God. Where's the disconnect? Well, I believe they genuinely do want to serve God. And I know I can speak as a pastor that there are genuinely a lot of needs for serving God. But often the disconnect comes in the expectation of how we want to be used by God. And there's a lot of people, it makes me nervous, I visit a lot of people in homes and people visit our church, and and uh, it makes me nervous when I visit with somebody and they immediately start talking about a ministry they used to be involved in that they want to see happen. And, and, and I'm not trying to be a cynic, but most of the time what that means is this, I will serve God, but only on my terms. Only on my terms. I'm not willing to find a need and fill a need. I will serve God, but it's going to be on my terms. It's it's going to be in the choir. It's going to be in singing. Or it's going to be in teaching. Or it's going to be in this and in that. And listen, there are needs in those areas. But I'll tell you this, the most fulfilling service is the, the needed service. The most fulfilling work to do is the work that needs to be done. There's nothing less fulfilling than doing something that is pointless. There's nothing less fulfilling than doing something just for the sake of doing. You know what we call that? We call that busy work. I remember being a kid, and, and and I hated all work when I was in school. It didn't matter what it was, I hated it. But there was something about, we called it seat work. We didn't know this at the time, but the, the adults were all sitting around laughing. We never thought to ask why it was called seat work. You know why it's called that? Because it keeps you in your seat. That was the only purpose in it. Listen, I, I've never been helped by the ability to copy the same sentence over 50 times. Never once in my life. And it was busy work. And there was something I especially despised about that because even at a young age, I thought, this is pointless. This is pointless. Paul says, I may not be being used by God the way that I wish I was, the way that I want to be, the way that I hope to be. But he said, man, I find joy in the fact that God is still willing. When He reaches in the tool shed and reaches to grab for for an implement, an instrument, that He would be willing to grab hold of me. And it it may not be the garden I was expecting, but the fact that He will reach and take me in hand and use me for His glory, man, that's something to get excited about. Man, don't you realize if we had what we deserved, we'd be in hell? But we can we can serve God. And it may not be what we expected, but we can be used of God. And to be used of God is the highest attainment of a human being. The highest attainment. So we see that we can find joy and purpose. Look over in chapter 3, the first three verses. Paul says this, and I don't have time to go through all of the the context, but I'll summarize it. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul's saying you can find joy here. To write the same things to you, uh, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision." And all those, by the way, are, we, could, we could parse through who they are individually, but he's saying people that seek to destroy your walk with the Lord. People that seek to destroy your walk with the Lord. I, th- I think probably when he talks about dogs, he's talking about Gentiles. I think probably when he talks about evil workers, he's uh, talking probably about people that profess to be Christians. And when he talks about the concision, he's talking about Judaizers. But he says this, verse 3, "...for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit." And rejoice, he says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now he's getting ready to go through a laundry list. Verse number four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Then he goes through a laundry list of all the reasons that he could trust in the flesh. All the reasons that he could think and be wrong, but reasons that he could think that he was good enough to get to heaven. Verse 7, he says this, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless not count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him. Listen this phrase, it's important. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He says, man, we can rejoice In this reality that who we are in Christ is dependent upon Christ and not us. We can find joy in peace. The peace and the salvation that Christ provides. Man, you want something to rejoice in? Just stop and think about the fact that you stand justified before the God of glory. Not dependent upon your good works or your broken promises. Not dependent upon your attempts at righteousness, but all in the person of Jesus Christ. No jailer, no burden, no trial, no loss can take away what God has given you in Christ Jesus. At the end of the day, and I'm gonna, I'm really, I'm gonna be real simple. At the end of the day, you're not going to hell. Now you might say, well, preacher, shouldn't we live for more in life? Oh yes. And there's more in Jesus Christ than simply not going to hell. But if you can't see beyond any of your other troubles, just recognize this, that in Christ Jesus, you're on your way to heaven, not dependent upon your own works, not dependent upon your own righteousness. You're not trying to make it. You're not trying to work your way there. You're not trying to hold on or push through or make it somehow. But it's a finished work in Jesus Christ. And that's a reason to rejoice. Look over in chapter number 4. Look at the first verse. Paul says this, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, he says, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now here, he describes, he uses the word joy as a name, as a moniker for the church at Philippi. And he says of them, you are my joy. And then he exhorts them to this, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now, he had talked about their own personal witness and testimony that in the midst of all the paganism around them, that they had stood for the Lord. And he's saying, you know, I look at you and and I could describe you, I could personify my joy as you. And you know why? Because you're standing for the Lord. You can find joy in persistence. And let me say it this way. You can find joy in the faithfulness of others. I, I, I don't want to preach for a long time about this for a myriad of reasons, one of which is that I sort of already hit on this a little bit when we talked about our partners. But suffice it to say that it's real easy to only see quitters and to never see those that are faithful. I think it's because it tends to be that the quitters are louder walking out the door than the faithful are sitting in their pews. And it's easier to notice the empty pew than it is to notice the filled one it's easy sometimes to notice those that are giving up and not those that are hanging on. But we need to be conscious. We need to be mindful. We need to literally take it upon ourselves. We need to put in action the decision that we are going to notice those that are living for the Lord. Hey, listen, man, if you want to find joy in the Lord, especially if it gets you down that sometimes folks are not faithful, find some old saint of God that's still walking with God, that's still living the same way, that's still got the same standards, that's still got the same testimony, that's still got the same commitment that they've always had. And man, just spend a little time rejoicing in the fact that not everybody's running out. There's some that are sticking in. There's some that are faithful. Look down at verse number 9, I'll read this, say a word, and we'll close. Paul says, Those things which ye have heard, or which ye have both learned and received and heard, and seen in me, he says, Do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced, he said, I found joy in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, Paul says, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, I read the entire context of that because I want you to understand what Paul's getting at. He's saying he's talking about monetary giving. He's saying that the church at Philippi, that at one time they'd been very, very careful to support him and to meet his needs. And I don't know if this is merely kindness on the part of the Apostle Paul. I don't know if he's giving him the benefit of the doubt or if he is speaking transparently. But he says, it's not that you didn't want to help me. It's not that you didn't want to try to give to me, but you lacked opportunity. He says, but man, I'm rejoicing in the fact that you're back at it again and you're giving again. Now, the reason I read the context is I want you to understand that not only me, but Paul himself, he don't really care about the money. It's not about the money. He says, not that I speak concerning want. He says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I know God's doing something in the abasing times. I know that God's doing something in the abounding times. He says, I know how to flourish. I know how to go through a famine. He says, it's not that I care about the money. But he says, I'm excited because I can see that God is giving you grace to give and you're exercising grace in giving. And he's saying, I'm excited because I see you stepping out in faith. And doing something for the Lord. In closing tonight, let me say we can find joy in progress. In the progress of others. Again, I and maybe it's just me. I might be preaching more to me than you tonight. And that would be okay. I need it. But it's so easy to sometimes to see those that are slipping away. And not see those that are drawing close. Man, I mean, I, I'll. It, it gets me excited. I mean, it really does. And, and it probably would get me more excited if I get my flesh underneath and and allow the new man, the spiritual man, to stand at the forefront. But man, when I hear people talking about God speaking to their heart when they're reading their Bible, and God giving them a fresh perspective, God answering prayers, and God moving mightily in people's lives. Hey, listen, if you want to, you can focus on those that are slipping away, and that will rob your joy. Or you can focus on those that are drawing close, and those that are growing in the Lord, and those that God is working in their heart and mind and life. And you know what you'll find? You'll find a source of joy there. A source of joy. So you see, really, even in a prison cell, Paul said, man, I find all these places to find joy. So my question is this. It's twofold. One, what has robbed you of your joy? I bet you there's nothing in your life that's worth giving up your joy for. I bet you if the joy of the Lord is our strength, I bet you there's nothing worth giving up your, there's no problem you have that's worth your joy. There's no burden you carry that's worth your joy. There's no failure of others or failure of yourself that is worth your joy. There's no wrong that anybody's done you that's worth your joy. What's robbed you of your joy? Number two, here's the question. Where are you going to find it back again? What are you going to get your eyes on? that's going to give you your joy back. I believe if we'll get our eyes on these things, man, we'll find something to be excited about, something to rejoice in. Let's